for another week in the Circular Economy Show podcast, where we bring to you expert insights on the circular economy and where we tell you the stories of the people who are actually making the circular economy a reality. My name is Laura, and I'm here with my co-host, Seb. Hey, Laura. Hey, Seb. Um, We are going to be introducing our guest in just a bit, but I wonder we have someone from the Coca-Cola company today in this episode. Why is it interesting to speak to someone from the Coca-Cola company when we talk about the circular economy? So I guess, as we all know, Lara, Coca-Cola are a massive corporation with enormous global reach. And what's interesting about those types of organizations is they have disproportionate impact in the marketplace. Of course, they're a significant part of the problem today, but we hope when we look at the ambitions they're setting out and the things they're tracking themselves against, that they can be part of the solution tomorrow. And who did you have an opportunity to talk to? So in this podcast, I'm speaking to B. Perez, who has a really interesting story for a number of reasons. She's worked at Coca-Cola for over 25 years in China, in Brazil, in Mexico, in various parts of the business. Ten years ago, she became the company's first chief sustainability officer. Um, the job title hadn't really existed in the organization up until that time. It wasn't even a very common job title in the industry more broadly. And finally, she took on that role despite not really having any background in sustainability. She was actually, up until that point, she'd been working in the marketing department and she was hired more for her knowledge and experience of the business than her background in sustainability. Well, Seb, let's hear more about Bia's story and also the work that the Coca-Cola company is doing on the circular economy front. There's lots of interesting insights to take from this podcast, Lara. I Um, directly ask me about some of the targets that Coca-Cola have on circular economy and actually some of the places where they're not doing so well. But I started by asking her whether working in this company was always part of her career plan. So I was I was a conflicted young adult trying to figure out what I wanted to do in life. And I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. And that didn't seem right for me. I was on that path and I was pursuing that education. And then I took a pause and I volunteered at a place called the U.S. Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. And I had about one year to really make this decision. At the time I was volunteering, I met the people at Coca-Cola. And I remember meeting some folks who were working in the marketing organization in Hispanic marketing. And, and I'm half Cuban, half Spanish. I have always wanted to continue to do more for my community. And so I found this was a really nice way to have a conversation that I was really unexpected in terms of what a career at Coca-Cola could be like. So I took this sort of side path where I left the chamber and I went to work for Coca-Cola's ad agency, but within Coca-Cola. And I was assigned to the Hispanic marketing. And that's what actually led to the permanent role at Coca-Cola after doing some work in that space in terms of community. I was more on the community side. And um, what was fascinating for me is... Coke for me became a place that I felt like I could really make a difference. It might sound a little hokey because that's our purpose statement, but I was asked at a very young age for my point of view. I was asked how to challenge the business. What else should we be doing by some very senior leaders? And I was a little surprised by that because as a young adult coming, you know, from university, I had heard, you know, all sorts of things about corporate America and bureaucracy and, And, you know, I wasn't necessarily wanting to go down that path, but I found Coca-Cola was a much more welcoming culture, a culture that wanted to learn to be better and valued multiple points of views. And all of a sudden I found 
that I could have not just a career, but actually really learn and develop myself and give back at the same time. I didn't have to make a choice to do one or the other, that I could actually give back while I was also building my career and my professional development. And you described um, the role you're doing now as your, as your dream job. What is the work, B? What, what, does, what is a day in the life of B Perez? <laughs> Every day in the life is very different, especially in the last two years, as we all know <laughs> and can feel. And so, so I'd say generally, I'm very fortunate because I've been able to work with extraordinary people, both internally and externally around the world to help put Coca-Cola on the path to truly start to think about how do we drive growth by being a better company and ensuring that our brands can be the best possible brands they can be from how they're created to how they're distributed to how they're eventually you know, brought back into the circular economy. And so part of the work that I do is I get to talk to extraordinary people like Ellen MacArthur, Andrew Morlay, or yourself, and bring the thinking inside of the business and challenge our own operations, and then guide the strategy to set the targets in the space, make sure that we're creating common definitions, that we're inspiring people to drive innovation, to continuously bring in new technology, and deliver on the goals to stay agile so we can actually build in new targets when we see new opportunities, and then to ensure that this becomes a part of the discipline. So it it might not sound like a great career aspiration, but my role is really to make sure that I'm easily replaced and that this is so embedded in the business that it's part of routine, it's how we operate, it's part of the planning cycle, that whether I'm here or not, that actually the work will continue for hundreds of years to come. And so a day in the life is me ensuring that I'm putting my own sort of personal ego aside and doing this for the business and for society and building the plans and challenging ourselves and challenging my myself as well along the way. So every day is different. But um, what I'd say is that what's consistent is getting to engage with really extraordinary people to drive the integration and to drive the results and the progress against the plan. And, you know, you've described Coca-Cola as a company that makes a difference. You've talked about your role as being like, how do we become a better, how do we drive growth while being a better company? Some people will look at a company like Coca-Cola and say, well, actually, as an organisation, you've been incredibly successful in a version of the economy that we're not talking about today. In many ways, a very successful company in the linear economy. What's your kind of message to those people when we, then we're talking about Coca-Cola's ambitions in the, in the kind of ESG or circular economy space? Sure. So I I think it's great that Coca-Cola has been successful and a great company because it employs a lot of people around the world. It certainly has been a part of community for many years. When I first stepped into this role in 2011, I looked at what have we actually done. And I found a journey all the way back to 1917 in terms of our work with, you know, the, the Red Cross and bringing water to communities in crisis, or 1934, the first woman ever on a corporate board of directors, Letty Pate Evans, it was the Coca-Cola board, or bringing, a, you know, the first sugar-free cola to the marketplace to remove sugar out of the products, to life cycle analysis in the 70s. So the journey has been fantastic. And what I think has happened is, is that that's probably been a journey that most people are not aware of. And you said it earlier, it's an untold story. And so part of the, the area of opportunity that I see is that how do you actually make sure that it's not this untold story and it's not these episodic moments, but it's actually part of the discipline of running the business and putting it even closer to how we drive growth. And so for me, 
really attaching ourselves into creating a circular economy, I really believe is how we modernize our business model and how we move and make progress in terms of the world and become that better business that we've always aspired to be. I believe that is how we make the difference. And so, you know, some people think of circular economy in terms of our business packaging. I can tell you that water is one of the most circular economies out there that we can build and establish. And it's reducing the water, reusing it in terms of manufacturing, creating other beverages, how we think about agriculture. Speaking of agriculture, India, we created a project called the Fruit Circular Economy. We call it Project Unati, where essentially we were looking at the entire value chain and how do you, and by the way, this started in 2011 with mangoes and moved to oranges as well. How do you ensure that you're doubling the farmer's incomes while you're actually reducing down the amount of water or materials or ingredients used to create sort of a higher yield? And how do you bring more value into the circular economy? All the way to packaging, which we know is what where we focus a lot with, you know, Ellen MacArthur Foundation and focus on how do you create go from bottle to bottle? How do you make sure we're collecting everything that's out there, reusing that PET and ensuring that there's no waste and reducing, you know, our reliance on virgin plastics? So for me, it's this much broader conversation in terms of we're in crisis in our world. We have got to really step up for this next generation. And we can't wait. There's a sense of urgency that I'm sure everyone is feeling today. And business, I know on some hand, some people say, well, business is big. That's not good. On the other hand, I'd say business is big. That means we can drive scale. We can make meaningful change. And we have the resources to do it. And we have to take the accountability. So I love moving from what you call that linear economy to a circular economy. Because I believe that's where we can really add value, drive the scale of change that's required, and protect our world for future generations to come. And I think that it's okay if business is thriving at the same time, because that means the more money we make, the more we can put back into the circular economy. Let's make our money circular too, right? (laughs) And we're definitely going to talk more about the packaging side in a moment. I I wanted to dwell on the point you kind of raised there, because I mean, I think when when people often think about Coca-Cola, they have quite a specific soft drink in mind. But it's worth dwelling on the fact that actually as a company, the impact you have is actually far greater than that. And you mentioned um, like some of the regenerative or the, the, certainly the, the relationships you have to have with farmers to service some of your products and some, therefore some of the influence that you can have on farming practices. There's water. You, you're more than a soft drinks company in terms of impact. Yes, that's right. So we're, we're soft drinks, we're juices, we're waters, we're teas. And, and the coffees and the list goes on. And so some of the brands, some people might know, depending on where you are in parts of the world, maybe Innocent you might be familiar with. If you're in the U.S., you might know Honest Tea. If you're in different parts of the world, you know, including in Asia, you might know Fairlife. That's our milk brand. So we are, you know, a, we're a non-alcoholic beverage business. We've done experiments in other categories as well. But we're not alcoholic beverages, and we really have tried to make sure that we're looking at the entire value chain from all of the inputs to the business all the way through to how we bring that back to make sure that we're doing everything from probably what I would say the olden days, enterprise risk management, all the way through to where we are today in terms of driving growth in a much more responsible way and using the least amount of natural resources to do that while actually regenerating resources back into the community. And I mean, maybe to make this a bit, I mean, um, to make this somewhat tangible, um, plastic packaging, big topic in the circular economy, a big initiative, new plastic economy for the foundation, sort of put on the map 
five years ago with some of the concerns about ocean uh, plastics. Um, one very tangible initiative that uh, Coca-Cola is attached to is something called the Universal Bottle in Latin America, a reuse initiative. I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about that as a kind of example of some of the impacts you can have. Yeah, so part of what um, you're talking about is our holistic strategy and packaging of world without waste. So how do we design out um, waste and design in better sustainable materials and reduce our reliance on virgin plastics? So Universal Bottle was a phenomenal example of that where we have a two-liter bottle, same shape. We put everything from our Coke to Fanta to Sprite within there. It's part of our um, refillable strategy, which also is a more affordable package for the consumer. And it's more responsible because it can be cleaned and refilled over 25 times. It's removed out or replaced over 200 million bottles in terms of what would have been created as new. So just imagine the amount of plastic that you're reducing out of the marketplace and reducing the waste. We've looked at that bottle and we've looked at scaling it across other areas as well. At the same time, what we have today in over 40 plus markets is we've expanded our refillable strategy. And so we want to continue to expand that as part of our vision around world without waste. And we want to ensure that we're able to grow that package type because we're finding that it has multiple benefits to the consumer in terms of pricing, but also to the environment in terms of a better material that eliminates all the waste and actually does create value and allows us to, you know, be a more responsible business. So, you know, I'm really excited because when I see 40 plus markets who've adopted on their own, I, I can tell you that this is important to the business and they're seeing the benefits. And at the same time, in some places, it's already almost 25% of the package mix. So we see that it's also growing. And the universe, just um, just as well on that universe board for a moment, is that that the customers return it and it gets reused or do they hold on to it and refill it themselves? So they return it and it gets reused. And so we have in some places a, a reverse um, package collection system. It depends on where you're on, which part of Brazil or Latin America you're in. You can either drop it at the retail location and then it gets collected by the business or in some places there's a home delivery pickup. So it's, um, you know, it's really an interesting opportunity, we believe, for different companies to look at how can they, you know, consider refillables within their own businesses and does it make sense for them. But for us, we know to scale this. This is a very simple innovation that is highly scalable and has multiple benefits. And, um, yeah, I mean, the the, the 25% of packaging mix, it's, you know, it's really significant and that's happened in a very short space of time, which is why it's such a compelling example. It's a compelling example of reuse, although... Um, you know, the most recent global, at the foundation, we published this kind of global commitment progress report, which um, Coca-Cola is signed up to and part of, uh, which is kind of tracking targets. And a lot of the story there is actually quite positive in terms of um, virgin plastics reduction projections. Um, the reuse side of that is that there's a lot of exciting innovations like the one we just talked about, but actually it's still a very small percentage of the overall global market both for Coca-Cola and across the kind of spectrum of players in the industry, for you, what and, and in some ways actually not growing that fast as a percentage of the whole market, for you, what's needed in that space to accelerate the kind of scaling you were just talking about and kind of bend the curve to make that a more mainstream, more significant percentage of how people access packaging? So I'd say a couple of things. One is we take the accountability where we've got to make the capital investments where it doesn't exist today. 
and make sure that we put that equipment in place and that we teach our own system how to do it and how to do it well. So, you know, we operate in over 200 markets. So 40 is a great start. And I think that that's really remarkable for where we are. It's certainly not where we want to be. And so how do we make sure those capital investments are there with our system and that we put that infrastructure in place? The other piece is working with the retailers or the collection systems to ensure that then if we offer it up, how do we get it back? And so we do fund many programs around the world in terms of collection. I think we're going to have to continue to do more at maybe the point of the retail location where it's been purchased or ensure that we can get some at-home collection and ramp up that scale. And then also ensuring that the facilities are there to wash and refill the bottle, which, which that's part of that capital investment. The other piece, and we talked earlier about communication, is the benefits. So, you know, there's certainly, especially in a time like today, people sometimes are concerned, which is, well, if this bottle is being refilled, how do I know it's clean? How do I know it's, you know, okay for me and my family? And so how do we make sure we're communicating the proposition that when we clean them, we bring it back to food grade quality? There are some standards that we impose in our business and that we have to follow by government regulations. And so it is the highest quality standard of clean. And so that is an important point to make sure we're also equally communicating that. And then there are some government regulations in a couple of countries where, you know, they might not allow it. So how do we also have the policy conversation to show them where it has been done and where it's been received by those communities? How do we ensure that the policies allow us to do it as well? So it's a multi-tier approach. Definitely want to pick up um, on policy later. Sometimes um, when I hear you, what, what I hear you saying there is this might cost some money up front. How challenging is that for someone in your role because I guess the story you're telling is that this might cost up front, but there's there are business benefits. This is a business, a bit fundamentally, Coca-Cola is a business and drives profits and wants more business, and therefore um, you have to sell it as a business opportunity, at least in the long term. How challenging is that, like in a context of a large corporation? Yeah, so large corporations, you know, most of us have to put together a benefit cost analysis, and and that's quite typical for the work that we do. 10 years ago, it was a much more difficult conversation. What I have found, though, is that once the benefit is clear and you can show the path to the long-term, either mitigation of risk or the growth equation, and now I can tell you most of it's around growth, it is something that unlocks a lot of investment. I also will say this. I feel fortunate. You know, Neville Isdale at Coca-Cola really had a huge focus on this, but even before him, and I want to go deeper a little bit into the earlier parts of our business, we had a you know chairman and CEO named Robert Woodruff, one of our founding you know leaders, with J. Paul Austin, who ran a big piece of our business. He was one of the first leaders to actually bring the environmental conversation to the forefront in the '70s, and he brought together in Georgia, in our home headquartered state, the Bankers Association. And this was in the '70s, and he said, and he went on record, and this actually ended up in congressional record. He said. We have got to do better as a business. And he was the first to launch some of our programs in terms of water and responsible recycling. And and so he really put that in the mindset of the business and how for business to be viable, we needed to do these things. Fast forward to today, what I see is that the investor community really cares because their clients also care. So investors now put ESG, used to be called sustainability, into the business equation in terms of how they rank and rate business and where they're going to choose to invest their clients' dollars and their dollars. And that has helped unlock a bigger conversation in terms of 
this investment decision is not dissimilar to investing in a new brand launch. It's not different to investing in a new innovation or technology in terms of distribution. This is really critical to the survival of any business and consumers expect it. This is not something a consumer you know, thinks is optional. Consumers expect this and expect business to take accountability and to run our businesses in responsible ways. And so when you start to unlock the fact that this is no different than making a capital investment or an innovation investment in any other area of the business. And here's the payout timeframe and here how it's going to work. And payout could be increased reputation. It could be increased sales. It could be simply actually having a more efficient, sustainable business. There are ways now to measure and track that where maybe they didn't exist years ago. And you all actually played a critical role in that. Ellen MacArthur Foundation played a critical role in ensuring that we were having common definitions, common discussions on metrics and bringing those equations to the forefront and engaging with the investors in a different way. And so while there were a very few pocket of investors 10 years ago, today you're seeing the mainstream investors really ensure that they're also putting this into how they evaluate business. That's what I think has made the conversation easier to have in terms of business. And frankly, for the future generations of people in business schools today and aspiring to business, this is something they're going to have to learn and understand. This is a part of the plan. This is not something off to the side. This is this is not in the appendix pages, as I used to tell people. This is front and center. And it, you know, even the language you're using, the, the term investment has certain connotations from framing, right? There's helpful for thinking about what these things really are. And I thought some of the comparisons you brought forward there are very helpful. I mean, there's <clears throat> there's kind of two sides to the story you're telling around how long some of these things have been worked on. One is that there's a continuation here and there's a kind of story of being focused on this issue in different parts. The other side is that um, we've been working on it for a long time and it still can feel like we have a long, long way to go. And that can almost be slightly disheartening. I mean, another big kind of topic in the plastics packaging packaging space and um, something we track through the Global Commitment Progress Report is recycled plastic content in um, in packaging and, you know, the sense that actually once we start to get uh, material flows back and we're, we're designing new things with materials that are being used and we're kind of making the circle economy happen, um, Coca-Cola has a target by 2025 of 25%, which lines up against many other players in the space. And um, since that target was set, I think it's gone from 8% to 9% to 11.7% in the most recent publication. Um and that you know it feels helpfully like progressive and incremental, but what's what are the challenges and barriers there to really scaling that up and accelerating towards that, well, at least that twenty five percent target, and obviously beyond. Yeah, so so I had hoped to be much further along right now, even though I know we have some a little bit more time to get there. I do think with the lockdowns a couple of years ago, two years ago when the pandemic first started, that stopped a lot of collection. So to increase the RPET usage, we do need to get that material back. And rightfully so, we, you know, we didn't want anyone out there collecting these materials if they were putting themselves in harm's way. And so we, you know, we had to pivot and understand, so what did that mean to the, to the RPET usage rates? Because we have investments in you know, facilities that our bottlers have invested in something called PetStar in Mexico, which actually takes the material, returns it to another bottle or whatever can't be used bottle to bottle goes to another resource. Same thing with Infineo in France or, you know, recently some of the expansion in Petco in Africa. A lot of that work slowed. It's moving again and it's back in terms of collection and people found ways to ensure that they're collecting in a very safe way. 
There's also other places in terms of where infrastructure is still lacking. And so we know that we have to put a heavier emphasis on this to meet those targets. We are proud that even during the pandemic, we did get some of our markets where some of our packages are 100% RPET today. Um, including in North America, we actually launched a 13.2-ounce Coca-Cola package with 100% RPET. And so we have found that if we can keep showing that momentum and keep getting the collection to open up and keep progressing there, we also have found that showing the proof points helps our business learn a different way to work in this new situation or environment. <clears throat> the other thing I'd say is that we also have and it's our intellectual property. We've talked about this with our investor community. So innovation, back to the innovation conversation. And we have some innovation around advanced lightweighting technology. And so we were able to also deploy advanced lightweighting technology. So we're replacing a lot less of the material when we use the RPET because we're removing the amount of material that's actually required to create the new bottle. So that's also going to help us accelerate this work as we expand the advanced lightweighting technology to other markets. We are, we're actually seeing that it's beneficial to the package. And it, it's frankly a very incredible technology because the plastic that is left within there is a lot less, several grams less, but it's also sturdy. And so where I think, you know, some of the complaints that some folks have had on lightweighting is that the bottles crunch or they're hard to hold or like if I grab it, my drink might pop out of the top when I open it. And so that it's equally important to invest in those technologies where we can use a lot less material and then we can help to continue to open up the infrastructure while we collect it back to put it to these other bottles to increase that number. So we're, you know, we're still, I'd say, on track and we have plans in place that we just went through in terms of our annual business planning cycle to see how the work will get done. But I do believe that we saw a slowdown, you know, with the lockdowns and some of the, you know, the safety concerns, which made a lot of sense as the pandemic started in the last two years. I suppose this is the value of, of creating that public target and tracking yourself against it year after year, because if it, it challenges you as an organization and gives you, I guess, be the ammunition in the organization in some ways to have these conversations like what needs to change and and the solutions may not be as literal just how do we collect more um our pet they might be how do we innovate with the design to allow us to collect less our pet or have to collect less high quality our pet um you seem like an optimistic person be in, in, in the conversation we've had so far what um more broadly what's your what's the thing that keeps you up at night in this space what's the biggest kind of challenge or barrier that you kind of face in your work? For me, what keeps me up at night is that I know there's so much more to be done and we only have certain amount of resources and there's only certain areas that we can be truly credible in driving the change. But as, as you know, there's so many opportunities that our world is facing right now. And, you know, what, and I am an optimist. So what encourages me at the same time that keeps me up at night is I also know that through a lot of the industry associations, through the partnerships, through Ellen MacArthur Foundation, we have people who are deployed against those other critical needs in our world. And we're starting to see how some of that sharing across industries can actually benefit the other industries. So this cross-section of conversation that you all have been able to bring to the table is actually maybe opening our eyes up to different technologies in a different industry that can be used in a whole different way within our areas. And I won't go into a lot of details there, but some of that work is proprietary. The, the one thing I would just say is that there is so much to be done, but as a business, we have to stay focused on what we believe we can drive that meaningful change in. 
And at the same time, we have to leave space for, you know, back to innovation. I, I call them at-bats. We're not going to be successful everywhere. So we don't want to see less investment because we're not going to be successful. When you drive innovation, you know you're only going to have so many wins. And you're going to probably have 90% of the things you do probably don't pay out and don't work, but you learned something from them that can be taken to the next conversation and to the next initiative. And so you have to have the stomach and the appetite to do that and to stick with it. And that's why I think the planning process, the transparency, the public targets are really important. And also having the broader conversations. So, you know, when we start to see things that, or I personally see things sometimes, I'm like, I wish we could all to do X, Y, Z, but I know we can't right now because it'll take the focus off of where we need to be in terms of the business and the change we can drive. It's at least knowing where to go and having the conversation and bringing it to others. But, um, you know, I, I'm a, an eternal optimist because, you know, I remember 10 years ago when I first was asked to do this role by Mutar, several people told me my career was over. It was really an interesting situation. I was so excited and energized. I was like, we are going to really drive some amazing change. And I, I'm, I couldn't believe I was going to get to be a part of it and the leader in the space. And then I had people say, well, when it fails, just call me. I'll hire you over here. You can go back to marketing. And I was like, are you kidding me? And it was interesting because a lot of the financial community at the time maybe didn't put this into the business metrics. And that's why people were saying that. And you know what? We started our, that, that actually inspired our teams. Our investor relations team partnered with me back in 2011 and 2012 and said, let's start the conversations now. And I was really excited by that. So, um, so you know, that's the part that I'd say that I'm eternal optimist because ten years ago, everyone told me this would fail. They say they said, "Be you're personally going to be out of a job. Companies don't do this." And I look at the world today, and there are more companies doing the right things. Not everyone is successful, but they don't give up. And we have the accountability and this in the strategic or the structural tension that exists between the investor, the community, the stakeholders. The, the business leaders, the employees, the employees inside want to see companies and the brands they work for do this work. So for me, that's why I get really excited and encouraged because all of that structural tension is actually driving us to all be better. And these things can be done. So for anyone who is dealing with any challenges right now or saying, I'm not sure how I'm going to get this done, when we set the water target to be 100% water neutral, Back then, we actually didn't know how we were going to get there, but we had some indications that we could get on this path. Well, we did get there, and that inspired us to continue to expand and go further. And it's what led to some of the learning in terms of how we set the world without waste goals today and where we continue to drive change. So I just say to all those folks, don't let anyone tell you it can't be done. Just find the people, find the technology, just talk to everyone until they, you know, help you out and people will help you if you ask. You mentioned policy a bit earlier, and I wanted to come back to that because um, Coca-Cola and a few other large, fast-moving consumer good companies have taken an interesting step in endorsing a statement from the Alan McCarthy Foundation on extended producer responsibility, EPR, um, and on a call for a um, UN, or not UN, a, a, a treaty, a global treaty for plastics. Um, why have you done that? Well, it's important to show that we're willing to support business working together with government to drive the fundamental change. And so there's plenty of governments who, 
you know, already involved in EPR and have done this work for years. But then there's also some who maybe are not as familiar with what it really takes to do it. And so for us, it's about how do you inspire by putting these statements forward and working through collective action to drive that change. And so that's why we signed up because we believe in it. We know that we have proof points that it works and can make a difference. And then how do we inspire everyone to work together, to align it, to do this in a common way to drive scalable change? And it's, it's interesting, right, because it's, it's easy to say we need policy. In many ways, it's more valuable to say which policies. Some people will be surprised uh, by some of the organizations that have endorsed EPR, for instance, because that does actually add a cost, add an investment yes. to your business. Yes, it does. But what we have found is that it can actually help to work in terms of the goals that we've set on World Without Waste. So if you look at the whole, you know, this is why I always believe we have to step back and look at the larger picture. If you look at what that can do, that actually starts to create an even playing field for all of the industry to make sure that we're clear on what is the goal? How is the mechanism going to work? How do we ensure that we're getting the collection done, that there's infrastructure to reprocess the material? How do we make sure that we're all playing our part? And it does provide that sort of that playing field where it's really clear what you're trying to do and that there's this accountability and the tension in terms of regulation. I know not all businesses like regulation. Sometimes you need regulation to drive scalable change. Sometimes you need regulation to ensure that we're all doing what we say we're doing or that the definitions are clear. So for us, we look at it and we say, yes, while it drives maybe a short-term cost, a long-term benefit certainly outweighs the short-term cost. Again, we've talked a lot about optimism. We've talked about, about UB. What is your, I mean, you are a leader in Coca-Cola on this topic, or you're leading a lot of the initiatives in Coca-Cola on this topic. What's your advice to other leaders who maybe are as senior as you or working their way up through organizations in various sectors? What would be your one piece of advice for them? Don't be afraid to fail and take risks. And, and for me, it goes back to the entire conversation, which is, you know, if I believed everyone telling me that I'd be out of a job, you know, in a few years because I took on this opportunity that I firmly believed in personally and professionally that needed to happen, then I wouldn't have done it. I'd be operating out of, you know, out of fear. And so for me, it's usually the things that make you nervous, the things that are a little scary, the ones worth doing. At the same time, that sports analogy, you're not going to win every game. Sometimes you're going to stumble and fall. I believe in people. I believe that people help you get back up. There were moments where I was like, oh, my goodness, you know, am I really going to be able to get this through? And it was just at that moment where people surrounded me and said, yes, and here's how you can get it done. And so, so I believe in the spirit of working together. And I believe that failure is just a moment that you can always walk through, pick yourself back up, and, and, and you can still do really well for yourself, for your business, for society, for the world, for the planet. Um, so my long, long sort of piece of advice, but I don't think, you know, we tell people enough that it's okay to take risk and that it's okay to fail because that's actually going to drive the progress that we need to see. And my final question to you, you've talked quite a bit about looking back 10 years and, you know, thinking about some of the incredible progress that you've seen and your sense of the transformation of the conversation and, and, and that being very positive. Over the next 10 years, where, do, where does the ambition level need to be raised for you and for Coca-Cola? For us, we have got to do more in the space of climate. So we already have, you know, we already had a goal that was set to 2020 to reduce the carbon of the drink in your hand. 
We then move that up to a science-based target by 2030 to reduce the carbon, the aggregate carbon by 25%. We have our European business, which is already committed our bottling business out there, which allowed our business leaders to do it across Europe, set a net zero target by 2040. So we are seeing that it can be done in parts of the world that we need to learn from. But I would love to see that globally. I would like to see us get there in the next year and set the target and continue to learn from the bottling system partners who believe it can be done and that they've made the investments to get there. I'd like to see that continue to go around the world. So a lot of work to be done. That's an area of in, you know intense focus that I would like to see us accelerate and drive more change in. And I have a lot of confidence we'll get there because that conversation is a very active conversation. There's a lot of belief. But in this space, because over 80% of our carbon exists outside of our direct control, there are a lot of people who are saying, well, let's make sure that we can get that 80% in scope three to really get there and to drive that change in their business to help us get to net zero. So I'm confident. I know it's going to happen. I, you know, we're certainly not giving up. Our bottling system believes in it. A lot of our suppliers believe in it. It's how do we make sure we put pen to paper and we, we drive that next action that needs to happen. And I guess in the, in the space of climate and the circular economy, one of the things that's kind of started to happen over the last couple of years is like almost connecting the dots between those things. How, working in a circular economy can actually mitigate this climate change and uh, climate, um, climate impacts. Um, yes. And that's, and you know, that there's a kind of like information cycle that can inform target setting and ambitions and goals. Well, and I think that's what you hit on. I'm not sure a lot of people really understand that water packaging, agriculture, all really is connected to this conversation by doing those, you know, if we reach our water work, if we do our work in terms of, you know, world without waste, if we get the agriculture side, right, we can, get to net zero. And so that conversation probably needs to happen a little bit more publicly and a lot more actively where we do educate ourselves as well as the partners that we work with and show them that it's possible and, you know, and help them understand that benefit equation, but how it is connected. Because what I have found is a lot of these companies that we work with are already doing the work. I'm just not sure that they understood how it translates into carbon reduction as much as Maybe they're, you know, some of their teams might understand or some other experts might understand. So I also appreciate the fact that we have partnerships like you all who can come in and help to educate some of the other businesses that, you know, we all work with or the industry. Because this is a place that we all have got to stay focused on. Yeah, we, I mean, we called, we called it completing the picture, like moving that story beyond um, energy. B, thank you so much for making some time to have a conversation with us today. Thank you so much, Seb. I really appreciate it. So that was Bia Perez from the Coca-Cola company. Seb, what were your main takeaways from this conversation? I always like to think about the world as um, being made up of positives and negatives. It's funny, by the way, that in the last two years, the meaning of positive and negative have changed quite a bit. It can actually be positive to be negative and negative to be positive. For the purpose of this, my summary... Positive means good, negative means negative or bad. Um, so my takeaways from my chat with Bayer are that um, on the positive side, it's amazing to hear that reusable packaging is already operating in 40 different markets. It's amazing to hear talk and frame the circular economy as an investment and talk about some of the investment pressure to demonstrate these positive impacts from business on the environment as a kind of key value proposition. Of course, what we also heard, and there is some honesty around 
where reusable packaging isn't scaling up at any level at the moment in most markets. Um, a lot of these things are really hard and um, you heard B talk about the need to push forward and push harder and drive towards some of those ambitions and targets set out in the global commitment more effectively than the organization perhaps has done to this point. And I think something as well that I'm taking away from this conversation is that we're probably going to see a lot of actions being taken in this next decade, right? So I, I, I don't know if you feel the same way. Yeah, and, I, and, and what we're seeing across the Ellen MacArthur Foundation's network, which of course is made up of businesses, uh, policy institutions, education institutions, innovators and startups, NGOs, is um, a raising of the ambition level and, and a you know public publishing and the ambition level as well to publicly track it. And what we need over the next decade, of course, is action, is design that converts that ambition into action. Design turns ambition into action, Seb. That's a great way to finish this podcast. If you've liked this podcast, please like, subscribe and share with Sherry With Youth Network. We'd like to remind you that this podcast is brought to you by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, where we develop and promote the idea of a circular economy, where we engage with key actors in the system and where we mobilize system solutions at scale. We'll see you next week, where we are going to bring you another conversation with some of the experts that are making the circular economy a reality. We look forward to seeing you next week. See you next week.